Welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show about the other sides of climate action. Here we learn from the fascinating experiences of adventurers, artists, storytellers, and scientists who help show us not only the how of climate action, but also why it's worth the effort. phase before the dive is known as the breathe up. So for five or 10 minutes, I'll focus on just my breathing and try and return to a very sort of elemental state, lower my heart rate and try and exist in the moment as much as possible. If I can reach that state, my dive will be amazingly enjoyable. Hello and welcome. What you just heard is a clip from a film featuring my guest today, Philippe Beauchamp. The film is called One Big Breath and was recorded by Duncan McDowell. So today's conversation is in a different vein than most. In this conversation with Philippe, a champion freediver, history professor, and polyphonic singer, we find a unique perspective on breath and air. What I find most beautiful about this conversation is Philippe's observation about the communities of people he finds joy with, whether he's controlling his breath and emotions underwater or above ground amongst his fellow singers. He's deeply aware of the communion he's in with those around him. I find it so inspiring. Philippe is a studious observer of his world, bringing a sense of wonder to the routine sites near his Montreal home. When he speaks of canoeing or about swimming small river rapids with his son looking for salmon, you might find yourself compelled to cancel your afternoon plans and take to the paths and streams near your home. I certainly did. Philippe is one of these people who well embodies a key tenet of tomorrow's air, which is the power of connection with each other and nature and what we can do when we all come together for common purpose. If you've ever experienced a great setback and had redirection forced upon you, this conversation with Philippe might feel familiar. We talk about how a knee surgery opened the door to a range of fulfilling new pursuits, and he's very open about how free diving helped him on a journey from a relationship that wasn't working, a body that wasn't working, to where he is today. I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right. Good morning, Philippe. Thank you Good so morning. much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I met you through Duncan McDowell, who is a filmmaker. And when he was telling me you know, about some of his past work, he sent me to a movie that you had done with him that was all about your free diving experience. And I wonder, maybe just tell me a little bit about your free diving background. I know that's not your primary work anymore, but Let's, I mean, can we start with that? What was that all about? Sure. Um, I started uh, freediving around 2007. So it's been almost 15 years and at the time really flies. I came to freediving largely sort of by accident in a way. I had, I had been involved in martial arts. I'd been, I'd been doing martial arts for over a decade before that. And I'd, I'd done some damage to my knee. I'd had two surgeries and I was quite unhappy about the whole situation and quite unhealthy. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
just out of nowhere, I, I was complaining to my physiotherapist in one of my sessions that I was putting on weight and I was, you know, sort of stressed all the time. And, and, uh, and she said, well, why don't you go to the pool at least? You know, she said, you, there's a lot of stuff you can't do right now, but you could go to the pool. There's not much you know, damage, further damage you could do to your knee. So yeah. I, I kind of ended up looking around for pool activities and, and met a, a kind of core group of divers in Montreal who uh, were free diving. This was, I mean, this is, you know, some of them had been I mean, That's like an intense thing. So the therapist says, go to the pool. Like, I yeah, I mean, I could have, I could, <laughs> that's right. I could have very well just done some laps. I mean, it could have right. been that. But I knew about freediving. It was sort of on my radar. Um, and this is probably not sort of so familiar to many people. But there's a French film called Le Grand Bleu, The Big Blue, by, by the filmmaker Luc Besson. Mm-hmm. It had been, you know in, it. Yeah, yeah. In, the, in the sort of early 90s or late 80s, had been kind of a big hit. And it had included these scenes of freediving. I had seen this movie. And so when I saw at one of the, one of the pools at one of the universities in Montreal that there was a course, I kind of signed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the, it was almost immediate, um, love. I mean, it was almost, it, it was a, it was an incredible experience from the start. And the essence of this is, I mean, it's breath work and mindfulness. Right. It seems like it, from a distance, it's not, you know, like swim as fast as you can. It's more like get as deep as you can. What was the first lesson like? Well, the first, I, I had always, and when you talk to freedivers, often this is a common element for freedivers, that they, as kids, had been attracted to the water, that they had always loved being at the pool, all of that kind of stuff. You know, if you talk to climbers, they'll talk to you about sort of being attracted to the mountains or, 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 or the peaks and things like mm-hmm. that. But for, for freedivers, there's, there's this common thread. I was always the kid on a rainy day. There, some poor lifeguard had to sit there with yeah. an umbrella and watch me because I refused to get out of the pool regardless of the weather, yeah. uh, and was deeply sort of unhappy when you know thunder and lightning came in. I was forced to get out mm-hmm. of the pool. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was kind of a, in some ways a kind of return to a, a, an old friend. It was a familiar environment, but the sport was very, very different. The sport element was was new to me. And it, the sport element was also different from almost any other sport I had done before. I mean, I had, you know, like I said, I had been doing martial arts for, for 10 or 12 years before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I had done whitewater kayaking and had done sort of quite a few sort of, you know, high adrenaline sports. Mm-hmm. And there was this one activity where adrenaline is your enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it requires that you control yourself that you let go that you calm down that you that you just sort of exist in a kind of second state where the only important thing is is your relaxation and your your ability to sort of relax um so i struggled with that at the beginning that was that was really really tough um because everything in me was was geared towards sort of getting primed and pumped up and ready to go uh, and that basically you shoot yourself in the foot every time you get too wound up for this kind of thing. And so you show like, is it, are these private lessons or you, or it's a group of people? This, and they this say, was a small, yeah, that's right. Yeah. This was a small group of people that had been, 
that had been uh, sort of practicing for the last number of years. And, uh, and I was sort of lucky enough to find them. And then uh, I, I was from, from, from the first lesson. I mean, it, it sort of became my rehab. Those uh-huh. first few months, um, I was, you know, I, I was in a, I was in a, a relationship that wasn't working. I had a body that wasn't working, mm-hmm. but that one Wednesday night at the pool was, um, sacrosanct. I mean, it was really, I would walk home after that, um, calmer than I had been for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not long after that, um, I had the chance to go out of the, you know, out of the city and to start diving, um, and doing depth. Um, and then I was, I mean, I was hooked and there was no, there was no coming back from that. And so the idea, you know, break it down. The idea is you hold your breath for long periods of time and go increasingly deeper and deeper. Are you wearing weights? You're wearing weights. Yeah. So, so it's so mortifying to somebody who's (laughs) it's, it's sort of a good test when you, when you explain this, some people will look at you with this horrified look about why would you ever want to do that? Uh And others are immediately interested. Right. Uh (laughs) Um, But so, so freediving in some ways can be broken up into sort of two elements. There's a, there's a kind of recreational element. There's an exploration element. uh, And then there's the sport component. And Mm. although the sport part of it, Often sort of in the media and in, and in, you know, sort of if you sort of look it up, the sport element tends to draw or suck up a lot of the oxygen. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more people who just simply want to go and explore underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so this, if, you, if you think about the sport element, it's really broken down into sort of three major forms of breath hold. There's a static breath hold, which is simply that you take a breath, you put your face in the water in the pool and then they start the stopwatch and you and you try and hold as long as you can. Right. Uh, and then there's dynamic apnea which is essentially doing the longest distance on a breath hold that you can. Again, this is going to be done in a pool. Um, and you know, there are sub disciplines here with fins, without fins mm-hmm. and things like that. And then there's the there's the depth component where you'll take a breath and go as deep as you can and and you basically have to bring a tag that's at the depth that you've called the mm-hmm. night before and bring it back to the judges at the surface. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, in all of this, you have to do it safely. And so if you, um, if you black out um, and the safety divers have to bring to the surface, then you're disqualified. So that's the sport component. If you black out. Right. Yeah. So the, the, the major danger of the sport is that you don't come back to the surface um, uh, in time and your oxygen saturation will, will drop. Um, and, and eventually you'll, 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 you'll pass out. I mean, and, and blacking out, you know, it's important to, to say here, the, the blacking out part's not the dangerous part. The dangerous part is the element. It's, it's being underwater. And so you need to be brought back to the surface immediately. Um, so, so you did your first, you got out in the open water and went deep yeah. and you were like, this is for me because this, this is... became, you became competitive and you were, this was like a big part of your life for a while. Yeah, well, it, yeah, absolutely. It was for about five or six years. I, um, I, I did competition um, and it kind of brought back all the things that I needed that I had was missing from the martial arts things that I was doing. Um, like I think, I think more than anything else, there was the discipline of the practice. There was having to um, show up 
um, several times a week and to push myself and to push myself beyond what I thought I could do. Um, the amazing thing about freediving is that, you know, even beginners will quite quickly progress. Um, once you get into the higher levels uh, in competition, then you're really fighting for sort of extra seconds or extra meters and things like that. But at the beginning, the jumps are enormous. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, as an instructor, when I get students, um, many students underestimate what, what they're, what they're, they're going to be able to do, but yeah, that, that part of pushing myself was really appealing, um, about the competition aspect of it. And I was lucky enough to be mentored in a way by a guy called William Winram, he, an, another Canadian who was, um, the sort of top freediver in Canada and has, was really on the international scene in terms of competition was, wow. was, was really setting records and things like that. And, and I was lucky enough to be sort of in some ways sort of taken under his wing and, and, and coached. Um, and so I ended up doing competitions in Greece and, and I, in Switzerland and, and a couple of other places. And those were, were ph phenomenal experiences. They were great. You're traveling around and, and, but you still, were you, so you're also a history professor. <laughs> yeah, you... this is, was yeah. that happening at the same time as you were this, being a history professor? Yeah, absolutely. So this was happening mostly sort of uh, during the summer, um, um, and I would train in the pool. You know, Montreal does not is not the most um, is not the most friendly to to divers during the winter months. Uh, <laughs> although we do, although we do dive, we do dive once or twice a year under ice and things like that. Um, but but basically, most of our pool training in in, in Montreal is done uh, in the winter months, and then when the summer rolls around, then we go and. Out and we do depth. Yeah. So that must have been so interesting for your like. Have a great summer. Everybody breaks and goes their different ways, and you're off doing this. Yeah. Very intense, scary thing. Did you ever have a moment where you where you felt scared, or were are you were you very zen? Are you very zen? No, 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 no. I'm 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 afraid most of the time. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but that's part of the sport. I mean, that's, and for, for people who've done combat sports and martial arts and things like that, that's a, that's a kind of fairly common thing. There's not, there's no harm in acknowledging that. Right. And there's no, and it's important part of the practice to say, yeah, I'm scared. But then the question becomes, what am I going to do about it? Do I cancel the dive? Do I dive? Do I limit the dive? You know, that's, that's a normal part of the practice. Mm -hmm. You got so into it that you you co-founded an organization, as I understand, is called Apnea City, which um, I just think of sleep apnea. <laughs> it's such a <laughs> anyway that the name Apnea City to me when I read that was like, oh, it's like a place where they sleep train you. But right. it, tell anyway, tell us what that is about. So Apneo City was founded uh, along with uh, a partner of mine, uh, François Leduc, who um, was one of the assistant coaches when I started freediving. And one of the people that I, that I most uh, spent time with exploring the area of, of Eastern Canada and Quebec. Um, and uh, this is not very well known, but Montreal really has the largest freediver community in North America in terms no of numbers. Kidding. It's a, it's a, it's a real, in, in some ways it's a real hub. And you would think that it's not just because of the cold winters right. and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, apnea really just means the cessation of breathing. So if you have mm -hmm. sleep apnea, you're, you're, you're stopping your breathing, but what you're doing uh, when you freedive is, is, is essentially the same thing. You're going to stop 
breathing for for a certain amount of time. And so here in Montreal was this sort of tribe of um, freedivers that every weekend would get in their cars and drive to different spots around the province and uh, dive and, and explore and you know, we'd, we would dive in quarries. We went down the rapids of certain rivers around here. I mean, we would dive under ice. There was there was a, a, a huge amount of activity. And so Apnea City is a school in Montreal um, that does um, freediving certification, but also takes groups out to explore um, the environment. And then there's a conservation element to the to the company as well. But um, so we're, we're really sort of doing all those three things at the same time. I love how they, you know, come together it's it is often impossible to love some uh, natural resource like in this case the water and not get involved in some conservation yeah that's right i mean it's always amazing you know montreal is an island uh and you know the province of quebec has lakes everywhere and rivers everywhere and it's amazing the extent to which people don't really know what's under the water they don't they haven't explored those 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 places and and so for us you know fine you know going off to some exotic place is great and all but but one of the ideas was that we should know what's going on around us and so Mm -hmm. we've participated in sort of river cleanup operations but we've also just taken groups down certain rivers you know put a mask and snorkel on and a wetsuit Mm -hmm. and 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 let's go and let's let's see what's there and it's always a surprise sorry you don't have to be in fiji to snorkel you don't you absolutely don't with Mm -hmm. if you're well equipped you actually don't right and we we dive in five millimeter wetsuits and we do that even under ice in the winter Mm -hmm. um and you can last a fair amount of time uh especially if you're moving along and 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 sort of kicking and things like that um so there's there's a ton of stuff to be done even locally um and and the look on people's faces when we do this kind of thing uh is 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 great i mean it's a great reward to to do to do that kind of activity you know there's we've seen sturgeon uh in the rivers around montreal um and and you would never know that they're there but they're there all day long swimming up and down and and so it's kind of a fun thing to do and so this is um so the waterman project is that conservation arm Yes. Well, the Waterman Project is is not uh, is not Apnea City. We we work uh, in association with. It, it, um, I was mentioning William Windrum earlier, yeah. and he's the one. He was the first person to dive out of the cage with great white sharks, and Ooh. and so his attraction to sharks and interest in sharks is is long standing. And so the Waterman Project was uh, was an organization that was developed and and founded in order to raise awareness uh, about um, shark and shark conservation uh-huh. and in part to help um, scientists who wanted to tag, so with transmitters, um, sharks in different places around the world for scientific purposes. And th- what freedivers bring to that is that huh. because they can, they don't have tanks on because they don't create bubbles. They can get quite close to these, um, oh to my these gosh. animals. Right. So you really have like, I, I get what you're saying about, you know, free diving is a different kind of adrenaline approach to adrenaline. It's like, you have to be calm, but these seem like people who take intensity and combine it with intensity. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I I have to remember sometimes what I'm talking about because <laughs> <laughs> um, things can become normalized for you. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I I'm aware. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. It it's sounds great. bonkers. Okay, um, so free divers are the perfect um, helpers for shark conservation. That's right. Projects. Yeah. Okay. Now, now this is a very different type of diving. Mm-hmm. So in in sport diving, in, when you do depth competitions, you dive at a specific time at a depth that you've chosen, and you do this one dive and you're done. You push it, you know, as deep as you can, um, and then you come up and, and your performance is done. But the, the you know tagging of sharks is a brutal, um, often six, seven, eight hour day in changing conditions with. Mm-hmm you know, in, in, in open ocean, um, and with repeat dive dives to, you know, uh, 30, 40, and even, you know, close to 50 meters. Um, and so it, it, it requires a, requires sort of some, some conditioning and, and, uh, and, and a bit of sort of stamina. So you Um, fly to some place where the sharks are with the scientists who say, we want you to help us tag these guys. You're bobbing around on the boat on the surface and then it's like, okay, we're going to go down. Let's go down and see if we can get them now. That's right. Yeah. So, so, so in 2017, I was on an expedition, um, off the West coast of, um, Mexico, Mm. um, in the Rivia Hijeros Islands, which is, um, Socorro is the largest of those islands. They're, they're often sort of referred to as the the Galapagos of, of Mexico. And the project was to tag um, hammerheads. Um, and so there's a, there's a, a mothership and then you get onto a, onto a, a Zodiac or a, a, an inflatable rib. And then um, you get in the, in the water and for the next sort of several hours, um, you dive up and down um, in an attempt to place these transmitters. Now, um, my job, my role in, in that is to act as a safety diver. So uh-huh. I'm diving with William. He'll dive with a, with a spear gun with the transmitter attached. Um, and my job is to follow him and stay just above him. And as he's coming back up to make sure that he comes back up to the surface and everybody's um, safe and that we can keep diving and keep tagging. Wow. And you're both holding your breath. So at We're, the start, that, you're like that's right. doing yeah. your deep contemplation, meditation, calming. I'm just making this up, but I'm imagining you have to get very calm on the boat and then you tip yourselves over. Well, we're, we actually stay in the water for several hours. We don't even get back on the boat between uh, dives. We're, uh, we're just swimming around. Uh, um, and so... <laughs> I, I would love to say that it's this sort of deep meditative yeah. um, sort of Zen-like thing. Love that. But, <laughs> but if, the, if the current is running, if the, if the swell is up, um, often you're, you know, half the time you're spitting water out of your snorkel because the wave keeps coming over mm-hmm. the top of it um, mm-hmm. and your legs are burning. And when you take a breath and you go down, you're already finning just to stay above the area where you want to be. So you're always, mm-hmm. already out of breath when you go. So, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to tell you that it's a, wow. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a Zen-like thing, but, but it's, um, it's quite physical. But the rewards are, are, are worth the effort for sure. And so what did the sharks look like? I mean, you got close to them. 
Yeah. Well, so it, it depends on the time. Act. It depends on the time of year, and in the different expeditions, you know, it's been easier or tougher. Um, and the, the hammerheads in that area, at, certainly at the time when we were there, sometimes they're like ghosts. They you can they barely come in yeah. to visual range, and then they sort of disappear again. Um, so so you can spend you can spend eight hours in the water going up and down you know, 60, 70 times, um, and never, ever, ever tag a shark. Um, and then at other times, um, the, the tagging is easier. What a, what a situation. So now you have daughters now, daughters. Uh, yeah. Son and a, son and a, a, a daughter. A yeah. Boy and a girl. And yeah. what do you tell them stories about this kind of thing? Are they curious? Um, yeah. They I, they're, it's hard to say how curious they really are. Um, I think it's, you know, growing up in a house where there are, um, you know, there are pictures on the wall of me in my diving days. They don't mm-hmm. see me. They see me go off and, and teach freediving courses. Mm-hmm. This is several years ago. My son, Sam, is 10 now. Um, but he must have been about five years old at the time. William uh, had come to Montreal and we had set up a presentation in, in the backyard and invited the community to come and see sort of new pictures and video from the latest expeditions. And, and, and William was giving a bit of a talk on diving with great white sharks and things like that. Um, this was at the time that William and my partner, Francois, were, were, were involved in, in an IMAX film called Great White Shark 3D. Um, and so there was the, 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 the launch of this film and things like that. Anyway, Samuel was sitting there, as William described, to a rapt audience yeah. about diving with great white sharks. And for a five-year-old, this must, this, the, the, the impression was very different because he uh, quite loudly said, boring. <laughs> <laughs> oh and God. so and, and William's a good sport. He laughed it off and, and, and stuff. But so, so yeah, I, I think my kids are less impressed by this than, than uh, others. Are probably. they swimmers? They are. That's a non-negotiable thing in our house. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, you know, um, it's okay if you don't become a concert pianist, but you will learn to swim. Yeah. Um, at least, at least while I'm, you know, um, providing the meals around this house. Um, <laughs> and that's not to say that I'm 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 particularly hard about it. Um, I think the best approach is is through fun and game. Um, Persistence. Yeah, um, I, I I remember being at the pool and you know swimming in in a cold pool. Then none of that is particularly fun, but that's not my role. I I, I can't teach them how to swim because it's tough for a parent to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, my role is to help them sort of see stuff, um, and so I'm I've taken them out um, to go down sort of rapids and rivers and things like that with me. Um, to see salmon and those kinds of things, so so that's certainly uh, a fun activity. So you know, I've, I've gotten and again, this is fairly sort of modest stuff: you, a, a mask and a, a wetsuit and, and some fins, um, and off we go. And again, when you say I took my kids swimming down some rapids, you the people give you a horrified look. Um, <laughs> but this is not the, I'm not taking them down sort of class five rapids. Right, right. Um, but, but I want them to see um, at least that there's an entire universe down there. There's an, there's, there's a whole ecosystem um, that's there and it's there all day long while you sleep and, and, yeah. and, and it's in, you know, it's, it's, just down the road having uh, it existing regardless mm-hmm. of what we do my son has a book called man fish 
about Jacques Cousteau. It's a beautifully illustrated mm. book about his journey and discovering diving and, right. uh, and that exactly that comment in there. And there's one page that sort of opens up like a centerfold, which shows he's, you know, diving down and down and down and down and having this deepening awareness of this whole world, this very vibrant, busy world that from the surface just looks like flat waves. It is, I, mm-hmm. it's very fun to contemplate that. Yeah. I, I think, I think if there's, you know, if there's one thing, it's that sense of wonder, right? Mm-hmm. It's that sense of, of discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we were, when we were doing this, we were on holiday two, two summers ago and, and I brought them, this is an Eastern, Eastern Quebec. Um, but there's a salmon river there. And, and so we were exploring and people were canoeing down the river while we sort of swam around. And, and uh, I was just talking to Sam. I said, do you see the school? Do you see them? And, and then, of course, the, these people had been floating right down this massive school of, of fish, not knowing that they were there. They're difficult to spot from the surface because they're, well, because yeah. they're adapted to their environment. Um, and so S- Samuel was, was quite pleased to sort of show people and, right. and, and to point this out. And so, you know, in the, in, the, in the time that I have with them before they become adults, I, my, part of my goal is to, is to do that. And I think the, what it also does is, you know, in terms of um, their relationship to the environment is that it kind of sets a baseline. I want them to have that experience so they can say there were fish in this river when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that it's important that the fish remain there, that, mm-hmm. that it's still a place where they can be when they're adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, but, and I, I feel that if they haven't seen those things, then it becomes abstract. It becomes a kind of, you know, I don't know, just right. a factoid about the environment. Right. Well, it's also giving them, um, I mean, the, the more time we spend outside and interacting with the environment, the more we see ourselves as part of it versus mm. sort of separate from it. Our sort of constructed world, it's very easy to feel that nature is like, nature is other That's versus right. nature is us. I want to ask you, Philippe, about your parents. What, where did you grow up? What were your parents into? So I grew up, uh, I grew up in Quebec, um, outside of Montreal. Um, my mother, uh, a university professor, uh, and my father was in education as well. Um, and I grew up in a fairly small town, um, you know, that of course I wanted to get out of as soon as I reached the age of 18, I wanted to, I wanted to leave. It was the kind of place that had two tribes, those who Mm -hmm. stayed and those who left immediately. Mm -hmm. And now I look back at that place as a a really wonderful place to have grown up. We we could Mm -hmm. get on our bikes and leave and, and come back for supper. Mm Um, and, and just bike out into the forest and there were rivers all around and that kind of thing. So that was, that was a a great place to be. Um, even if I couldn't fully appreciate it at the time, now having kids, I I can, I can see how, how that was a a good place to, and safe place for me to go and explore and things like that. Um, uh, my dad and I canoed for a long time. Um, and so that was a, that was an important part of my, my relationship to my, to my father, we would go down the local rivers in a canoe, and and uh, and so those hours spent doing that and exploring just locally were were, were fun for me. That was a that was a, 
a very cherished um, time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it remains a thing that I do um, that I do um, with the kids. Um, I just took them down two weeks ago, um, down some fairly easy stuff, but enough to sort of <laughs> excite them and and me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's um, that was a, a kind of legacy, I guess, from my dad. This 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 canoeing around the the local rivers that was uh, important. Yeah, it sounds so Canadian. <laughs> shockingly cliche it's isn't it just so, it's so wonderful the um i felt the same way growing up in anchorage alaska i just sort of i turned 18 and couldn't wait to leave and now i love going back there and i feel like it was such an incredible choice that my parents made for us to be there and i you can totally see what you need in different stages of your life where you want to be what you want for a little kid to be able to roam yeah. around freely. Yeah, I mean, my kids in the middle of the city, um, and so they have a, a, a kind of different childhood. It's a it's a an alleyway kind of childhood, and they explore and run up and down the different alleys and things like that. And they're wise in ways that I I wasn't at their age. You know, the, the taking the subway doesn't phase them in any way. That's pretty normal, and you know mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Um, but my parents are still in that area, and so we make regular trips down down the highway to 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 be there. Philippe, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you also are into a new hobby, <laughs> which so for me, you know, when I learned about you, for me, the the through line of everything was air. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow's air. We're very focused on cleaning carbon dioxide pollution from the air. And I thought I, you know, learned a little bit about you. And I was like, this guy is like the embodiment of manifestation of air. Like everything about what you're doing is, has so much related to breath and air. And then, so that's how I felt learning about the freediving. I was like, oh, it'd be perfect to talk to him because of his connection and understanding to air. And then I learned even one step further because tell about what you're into now, this incredibly <laughs> I, bizarre form of singing. I looked this up on YouTube. There's a woman who really, anyway, please, please right. tell. Uh, so <laughs> the manifestation of air, it, it, that sounds great, Christina. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. It, I, 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 uh, you probably haven't thought it's of more the manifestation of struggling to breathe probably more than <laughs> anything else. But um, so, so, as my as my um, uh, as my competition years sort of waned a little bit with with the kids and and I had sort of further knee problems, I, I had to sort of pivot a little bit, and so I've become involved in uh, with a, a small group of people here in Montreal who do polyphonic singing. So, mm. um, for your listeners, poly- polyphony is is basically many voices, um, and so it's a little bit different than singing in a choir in the sense that. Um, different people who sing with you um, will sing different melodies at the same time. So it's very challenging for the ear because you're always in, you know, harmonizing with, with others. And some of those, some of those harmonies can be dissonant and things like that. So, so it's, it takes a, it takes a lot of practice um, and, uh, and a bit of an ear to, to do this kind of thing. Uh, poly- polyphony 
polyphonic singing traditions um, exist in many places around the world. Probably the best known is in Corsica. Um, and so Corsican polyphony is a particular type of, of singing. It's very beautiful. Um, and normally it's, a, it's in groups of, of several people uh, who sing at the same time different melodies, but are typically harmonized. Georgia um, uh, in the Caucasus also has a polyphonic tradition, Bulgaria, um, and there's a few other places around, around the world that, that has this kind of tradition. My sister says uh, that I can't just pick a normal sport or activity. <laughs> yeah, I, so, I think she's on the side. <laughs> she, I think I hadn't realized it until she said it. Um, but she said you couldn't you couldn't just do scuba diving like everybody else. Right. You had to go off and free dive, and you couldn't just join a choir and sing. You had to do this weird polyphonic thing. Um, yeah. But that's become a, yeah, that's become a, a great passion of mine in the last number of years. Um, and you know, again by coincidence, the osteopath that was treating me for my for my knee issues. Um, did this, and and so he invited me along for a very different kind of uh, trip um, that also involves, you know, breath work and and, and control of breathing um, in a very different way. Is it hard to learn? Has it been hard? It's it's a. I said coming back from my first workshop that I was more exhausted than I had been from most uh, training sessions at the pool. Um, yeah, it's 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 quite challenging for your brain to to keep your note while others around you sing three, four, or more other notes at the same time. This is usually done in groups of three, four, five people, mm-hmm. um, and some of the singing is uh, religious. It's 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 usually sort of sung in Latin, and it's adapted from sort of uh, liturgical texts, um, and and then then there's a whole profane catalog of of stuff that uh that, that you sing which are about you know agriculture and the sun and nature and those kinds of things that being said i you know i when i started everybody that i met said oh because they knew i had this free diving connection they thought oh wow you're going to be amazing at this because you can hold your breath for x number of minutes and mm-hmm. things like that and i am absolute rubbish um, <laughs> I'm, I, that was a real struggle. I, I thought that I would be able to, but it's a very different kind of thing. Um, the, when you, when you dive, when you free dive, you, your, your diaphragm more or less sort of stops. It, 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 it doesn't move. And so when I hold my breath and for the last, you know, decade or so, I simply sort of kind of block the diaphragm and I, and off I go, uh, underwater. Um, but singing is very different. You have to be able to move it as the air sort of slowly, um, goes out of your, so, so those are almost competing ways of, Mm. of using air. Uh, so I've had real trouble sort of, uh, being able to, to hold my breath when I sing. I'm often gasping or out of air before I'm, I'm finished singing my, my, uh, my part and things like that. So, um, What's one of the, um, like, if we're going to look up a piece of polyphonic music, what should we listen to? Um, there, there are a number of uh, Corsican groups that I think are really worth taking a look at. There's a group called Afileta um, that has done interesting that. stuff. Yeah, Afileta is A-F-I-L-E-T-T-A. Got it. And so Afileta is uh, a group that I think is 
particularly interesting because they've done traditional things, but have taken Corsican polyphony and explored other things. They've they've been in contact with Georgian traditions, and that's influenced their work and things like that. So it's a it's a it's a way in which you can see that this form of singing is not just fixed in time; that it's evolving and and vibrant. Um, and so uh, that's that's I I think a one to check out. Um, I like thinking about um, historical. I like thinking about the past coming into the present, you know, being not just being a relic, but getting practiced and mashed up with other things and uh, becoming something new. Yeah. um, I think that's my historical side too, is that um, it's not so much, I mean, I'm interested in old things, obviously, but I'm interested in what people do with mm-hmm. older forms of of music, culture, and things like that, and how it informs sort of people today. So, um, Corsican polyphony is that kind of thing. It's got one foot in this very ancient tradition, um, and one in in a in a in a in a very vibrant sort of artistic culture. I mean, Corsican polyphony was was listed as a UNESCO. UNESCO yeah. has a has a list this. of immaterial cultural practices so right. you know we could we can you know we can talk about the taj mahal and those are those are you know those kinds of things the great wall of china and things are are fixed places but there's also a list of things that are immaterial non-tangible practices um and this is one of them um and i think that that's an interesting idea that we would want to think about practices and not just buildings or works of right. art and things like that um that are worthy of 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 protection and investigation and and support. I think that that's an interesting idea. It's probably easier. It's easier to donate some money to protect a building than it is to inspire a group of people to practice and learn and keep a cultural practice alive. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and and the the interesting thing about about polyphonic singing in it in part is that it's a little bit different than sort of other forms of singing, which are done really for an audience. If you think of most of our experience of hearing singing, um, it's really done either in a concert hall or with a microphone that amplifies the sound of, of, of somebody's voice or a choir sort of broadcasting to the audience, right? Um, and the, the, the really trippy thing about polyphonic singing is that it was in part something that's done... Um, with other people for the sake of singing. And so when you're close to other people, and and often if you look at polyphonic singers, they'll sometimes sort of put their hands on each other's backs and things mm-hmm. like that, um, is that they're feeling the vibration. When you, so getting close to a group that does this. This is so um, beautiful. Is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, that is really suddenly, that's where my world changed for this. I mean, it, it, you know, musically it's interesting, but getting close and having that that sense of vibration from the bodies around you was a, was a really interesting experience. Oh, it's so connected. It's like such a, um, yeah, we're all connected. The Philippe, the other thing that, that I'm sure you've contemplated this, but it sounds like these terrible knee surgeries were really that, that breaking down for you was the opening up of so much the knee surgery 
took you to polyphonic singing. The knee surgery took you to free diving. It, it feels like that must have been kind of a turning point in your life, even it, though it, it was a hard, sounds like. Yeah, it was just hard. Uh, <laughs> um, Did you get as it I as a turning point? No. <laughs> No, I, I felt a tremendous frustration hmm. um, and and inner turmoil about the whole thing. Um, there's a kind of long history of me doing sort of semi-dangerous sports that get my blood running. And that for me has always been a great pleasure um, to put myself in just enough danger that I feel alive. Huh. But as I age, as I, as I sort of look back now with a few, you know a bit more experience it i i do get I, I can kind of see that in some ways it was i don't want to say a gift it wasn't a gift but it, it did provide me with all sorts of activities that i normally would not have experienced i and love so it, how you seized yeah. on things though you know it's really it it's fascinating and well, i think I mean, you can look at any point in your life any of us could look at something going on in our lives and go and it sounds so like definitely cliche and trite, but like it could be that this dramatic episode of your life is really a gateway to deeper exploration, meaning, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think that for me anyway, that happened kind of organically. I, I did spend some time just sitting around moping <laughs> um, and pining for the days where I could, you know, uh, run for hours or, you know, do, do all those kinds of things. Um, but quite organically, you know, I, that became just as unpleasant as the actual knee pain. Um, and so I kind of reached a state where I thought, well, this is what it is. And you, you, you have to sort of, what's next, you know, you can sit around thinking about sort of what I could, or, you know, what I used to be able to do, or make a plan for what's going to the ne be the next big thing. Um, and I have to say, I've, I've been in that, uh, have been lucky enough to meet people who have profound communicable passion for what they do. And, mm. I, and you know, both in terms of diving, I, I've, I've never been cool. happier than with a bunch of people who simply want to go underwater. And there's no talking down there. There's nothing, you know, uh -huh. everybody just comes back to the surface and they start breathing again. And then everybody gets out of the water with just these big grins on their faces. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing with singing. You can, you can be with a group of people doing this and just feel in the air this, this profound contentment. Um, so, so I was lucky that the, those people were around and, and maybe lucky that I was paying enough attention and not moping enough that I got to, I got to you know, jump on those, on those, on those bandwagons. You, um, I was reading some of the reviews that your students leave you at college. Uh oh. Uh, no, they like you, um, <laughs> <laughs> but they think you're very strict, and they think mm. you are insightful and also funny. What are your are your lectures like? Do you weave? I mean, I just from this conversation am imagining that I would love to be in one of your lectures because I bet there's so much. Um, like human perspective and color that you can bring. Like you're sort of a storyteller, right? Do you, what do you, what do you like in the classroom? Are you funny? Um, I, I don't necessarily think of myself as, as funny, but I think the material is sometimes funny. 
Mm-hmm. Like in um, example. Well, I, you know, I, and this is maybe darker than it needs to be. I, I teach a course on on genocide, mm-hmm. um, and one student sort of pointed this out this semester that I was going through the sort of upper echelons of the Nazi um, command structure and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, making fun of each of these people <laughs> in part because is, there's almost none of them that look Aryan, that look like the posters that they were, um, oh, they that were, they were promoting. self-loathing. That, well, Hitler's not blonde-haired and blue-eyed and Hermann Goering by the 1940s had, had reached sort of, you know, Jabba the Hutt proportions. Um, so so I, I kind of pointed out, and my point to the students was that, you know, the, the ability of people to lie to themselves is something you mm-hmm. should you know pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, anyway, the, the students thought that that was quite funny that I would, I would you know, <laughs> take the piss out of these uh, these people who are long since dead and, and deserve all of you know all of the right. condemnation that we can that we can you know muster. Well, there's um, so many lessons too, and and we don't have to have a political conversation, but you must it must be hard not to notice the sort of parallels in yeah I, 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 so I noticed that still today it's not just abs- a historical thing no it's not I, and that's i think when history is done well i think it informs us as much about our own world as it does about the past um but that's not my job i i, I mean I, I don't know i might not this might not sort of come out exactly as i mean it but i want the students to think about the time they're living in and i'm mm. not living in their time i'm not 19 mm. um and there's there's a there's a game of catch-up that i've had to play over sort of 20 years of teaching you know when i was when i was and i've always tried to think about the the people sitting in front of me the students that sit in front of me and you know they they have this moment we've all had this moment there was a time somewhere when you were 9 10 11 or 12 years old where some world event happened that made you realize that there was a much bigger and broader world out there, that there was stuff happening beyond your neighborhood and your friends. Um, and, you know, I, I can remember in the 1980s, the, the explosion of the Challenger yes. or, or That's Chernobyl. What That's what came into my mind. Right. So, so th- those events, I remember suddenly on TV and the adults were talking about it and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, and so I've always kind of kept this idea in my mind that if I want to understand my students and where they are in time, that, that the, those initial contacts with sort of historical events are, are kind of important. So when I started teaching, for example, you know, it was the Rwandan genocide. In 1994, this whole thing explodes and, and students who by then, you know, by then were in college w- w- said, yeah, I kind of remember that as, as an event, right? And then it was September 11th. And then it was, you know, 2008, it was the election of, of, of Barack Obama. And so over time, my students, you know, and now my students have, have, were never even alive during the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I'm constantly trying to f- sort of think about what they're thinking about and that's fun. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a real challenge, um, to try and bridge the gap between the past and, and, and what they're thinking about and what their concerns are. You know, that's been, a, it's, it's a, it's a great, tremendous privilege to teach these students. They're, they're, you know, interesting and, and, and passionate about stuff. And, what and are so, they thinking about? What do you think they're thinking about? Um, I'm going to probably get this wrong. Um, 
I, I, I tend to ask them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the pandemic has been hard. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about it, the, you know, 17, 18, 19, those are the years of, you know, going off uh, and, and having certain ceremonies that mean something, graduation, those kinds of things. Um, it's also the time, I think, where many people are trying new things um, and meeting new people. Um, you know, my friends are my friends and I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy with them. And I, I don't, you know, connect with people in the way that 19 year olds do. They're really out there sort of trying on new things. And that has stopped. That stopped for two years for, Um, for, for many of them. They were on their phones. They were in their rooms. They were not in school where you might stumble across, uh, people who, uh, are different than you that disagree with you. Mm. Um, and so, um, I think I, th- I think that that's been hard. Um, I think they've been they've been amazingly resilient, um, but but I think it's been a challenge. Yeah. What do you in our sort of? I could talk to you for hours, by the way, <laughs> um, but I do see us coming up on the hour. What are you thinking about for the future? What's on your mind? What do you What do you worry about? What are you hopeful about? Um, that's a, that's a good question. I, I, um, I, I, the, having kids changes, I think the horizon a little bit. Um, it, it's not, you know, in the last 10 years that it's, it's not that 10 years ago I was, you know, blind to what was happening in the world or, or not concerned about the future and things like that, but having kids kind of crystallizes things a little bit. Um, and so my hope is that the my children get to get to do interesting things and lead interesting lives I, and if i can sort of be part of that um that's a that's an important thing for me um so i'm looking forward to more time spent outside with them and and just exploring stuff um and for me some of that stuff is historical i'd like to i'd like them to see um different places around the world. Um, but I also would like to just sort of spend time exploring, you know, the woods and the rivers and the lakes and the, that kind of stuff. There's so much right there. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't have any sort of great ambitions. Yeah. Um, if I, if, if that, if that happens, I'll, I'll be quite happy. Well, I am really, really delighted. I learned so much from you. Thank you. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. It is the sensation that is the most intense and most enjoyable of freediving when you're diving deep. It's a feeling of flying through space in a way. <laughs> <laughs>